Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. After the brief hiatus of the Book of the Year last month, we return to our series celebrating 30 years of Physics World. This month, we're looking at nuclear fusion. And we'll go on a trip to an experiment in Oxfordshire which is recreating the conditions at the heart of a star right here on Earth. Their goal is to produce clean energy for the planet. Nuclear fusion physicists have been trying to harness the energy of the stars since the 1930s. Einstein's famous E equals mc squared equation tells us that when two atomic nuclei form one larger nucleus, it releases huge amounts of energy. And that's the energy that nuclear fusion scientists hope can power the future of our electricity. Unfortunately, those reactions only occur in extreme conditions. The kind of conditions that you find in the centre of stars. If we can somehow harness the vast amounts of energy provided by controlled fusion reactions here on Earth, then we could have an almost unending source of energy. The joke, of course, is that fusion has always been 30 years in the future, and something of a distant dream. Over the last 30 years, there have been some false alarms and overhyped moments, but there have been some breakthroughs too. Fusion experiments around the world have been achieving higher and higher temperatures, with China's experimental advanced superconducting tokamak achieving temperatures of 100 million degrees C in 2018. Tokamak is a word you'll hear a lot in this podcast. It's a Russian acronym and it describes a machine which uses powerful magnets to contain exceedingly hot plasma in the shape of a torus. A toroidal shape. Essentially, a spinning ring donut shape of plasma. MIT scientists are developing SPARK, a relatively small experiment, which they believe will get nuclear fusion on the grid in 15 years. That's potentially in time to have a major impact on how much or how little we impact climate change. In the south of France, work has begun on building ITER, the world's largest magnetic confinement of plasma experiment, which is a collaboration between 35 nations. Melanie Windridge is a plasma physicist who works as a communications consultant for Tokamak Energy in Oxfordshire. Melanie wrote a feature for Physics World's 30th anniversary edition back in October 2018 about the stuttering start for fusion. It was really interesting actually looking at some of the old articles from Physics World 30 years ago. Of course, Um, I was like a child then, so I wasn't reading the news. I didn't even know what fusion was uh, back then. So personally, it was interesting to to go back and and see what the scientists were talking about um, back then. And there were some interesting things, aside from the cold fusion for Rory, which which came up at that point. um, The things that are interesting for today's research is that you can kind of see how we got to this point where fusion is, <laughs> the big joke is that fusion is always 30 years away. <laughs> um, because there was a point where they, you could see that the scientists on the two main sides of fusion, so on the magnetic confinement side where we use like tokamaks and magnetic fields to, to trap a hot plasma of fusion fuel, uh, that's one side. And then there's also the inertial confinement side where they're using lasers to compress a tiny pellet of fuel. Uh, so on the on both of these sides, the researchers about 30 years ago were 
was saying that we were at about the stage where the next machine, the next step, was going to give us ignition. So this is what you want to achieve in fusion. Well, you, you want to get to a self-sustaining reaction, if you like. So there, there are two things. There's break-even, where you get more energy out of the reaction that you, than you put in, which is obviously quite important if you want to make a power station. And then there's also ignition, where the reaction itself becomes self-sustaining. So the fusion reactions that you're generating are keeping the plasma hot, and you don't have to keep putting in more energy to keep it going. Anyway, so the scientists about 30 years ago were saying that they thought that in the next SEP machines they would get to ignition, which is really great, it's really hopeful. The thing is that um, 30 years on, we still haven't got to ignition. And most of that is because uh, we haven't really had the next step machines. So on the magnetic confinement side, uh, we're still waiting for a machine called ITER, uh, which is currently under construction in the south of France. And it will, uh, it's going to be starting to operate, hopefully, by about the mid-2020s. And so the reasons for this are like political and funding related. So 30 years ago, some of the funding was being uh, cut from some of the programs, like at Cullum, which is the main centre for fusion in the UK. They had a 25% a cut over the, the following three years, um, I think, from their budget. That meant that people had to focus on the least scientifically risky approach. So they couldn't investigate lots of different approaches. They had to really sort of pick one, pick the least scientifically risky and go with it. And so that's what they did. Uh, as I mentioned, um, on the magnetic confinement side, they started building ITER. On the inertial confinement side, they started building NIF, which has been operating actually for several years now, but hasn't yet reached ignition <laughs> as predicted. Um, but it's still performing well and it's, its lasers are, are producing more energy than expected. So like that's all good, but still no ignition. This focus on building bigger machines, the less scientifically risky approaches, has meant that it's really slowed down the progress towards fusion. Do you think if they'd not taken the less risky routes that we'd be there already then? I think it's really difficult to to call like when fusion will be ready. You have to remember that we're trying to make a sun on Earth and that's as difficult as it sounds. So it's it's really not easy and there has been a lot of progress over 30 years. It's not like the fusion scientists have been sitting around twiddling their thumbs. There's been a lot of important research done on JET, which is currently the biggest tokamak in the world and it's located at Cullum in Oxfordshire. Um, and we've learned a lot more about uh, plasma physics, about um, you know, the, the, the systems that we need for, for fusion. So there's, there's work that's been going on. Uh, but in my opinion, more funding would have made things happen faster. And what's interesting at the moment is that private funding is starting to come into the space as well. There are several startups around now, uh, some of which have been operating for several years, maybe nearly a decade. And that's really, really hopeful because it means that people other than governments are putting their money into fusion, which means there's a will to see fusion happen. But also, uh, it means that we can try some of these approaches that were thrown out 30 years ago, some of these things that couldn't be done before. Now, that's not to say that well, they picked the, the, the chances that they thought would have the most chance of success, of course. And so the tokamak is a very well understood concept that has decades of research behind it. Um, so that's a good thing. But it's still interesting, I think, to investigate some of these alternative concepts because it just raises the knowledge in the field. And there might be things that we haven't explored that are applicable. The other thing we can do with um, private companies is that 
it's easier for them to take on new technologies and, and new things and integrate them into their programs. And things have changed technologically in 30 years. And so that's something that startups are able to do as well, is a bit more easily than, than the private sector. So there's ITER, which is really exciting, but even that won't get fusion energy into the grid. And it's more of a proof of concept, really, isn't it still? So it still feels quite a long way off. Yes, after ITER, the proposal is that there will be a demonstration reactor, which is dubbed DEMO, and that will demonstrate electricity production going onto the grid. And then you can start building power stations. So yes, it is it is still quite a long way away down the ETA track. Um, but as I said, they picked the, the scientifically less risky approaches. So they feel that, that that's okay because they're going to get 10 times more energy out than they put in and they'll be able to demonstrate that it works and they'll be able to uh, test some of the tritium breeding systems and various other experiments um, are going to be done. And then they can go into demo knowing all of this and then you know, you're ready to put energy on the grid. But if if other companies can come in and can do things faster, I don't think that's a waste. Like Globally, we need fusion as soon as possible if we're going to uh, you know, minimise the catastrophic climate change <laughs> issues. Uh, so... You know, the sooner we can do fusion, the better. And ITER has been a really important project because all the work that's gone into ITER feeds into what other what others are doing. Tokamak Energy, for example, because it's the same concept, it's a Tokamak concept, uh, you know, there's a lot of knowledge out there. Tokamak Energy is building on decades of research that's gone into JET and ITER and earlier Tokamaks, you know, going way back. And that's so important because we've got really stable foundations. What Tokamak Energy is able to do now is we're bringing in high temperature superconductor technology to make more powerful magnets. And, uh, and we think that by doing that and combining it with a, a spherical Tokamak shape, which is more efficient, we can make more compact, um, smaller modules. They'll still be fairly big, but smaller than ITER and DEMO. Um, and then if you have a modular solution i.e. lots of small modules making up one power plant rather than one giant machine, then you can you can have more flexibility in how you operate it. It de-risks the process so it makes commercialization easier. You know, so there are many things that we can do now with the Tokamak concept, with all that research that's gone into ITER, to just you know take this over the edge and get us into the realm of commercialization. So yeah, I don't think you could ever say that ITER's been a waste of time. It's just, you know, it's what it is. They they went down this particular route 30 years ago. Here we are now. How can we best use that information and use the new technologies and the things that have changed in the meantime and, and give us the best outcome for, for now and for the future? In the past, it's always been too much of a, like, oh, it's still a bit science fiction. Is it ever going to happen? As soon as people start coming in and saying, you know what? We think this is really going to happen and we're putting our money into this and this is going to happen. That's what changes the world because then more people do it and more companies do it. And maybe then the oil companies will say, hey, maybe we should look for an alternative to this, <laughs> this fossil fuel stuff. That's really, really important. We all have projects we're working on, you know, whether it's a podcast or baking a shed or 
the end of those things is always in sight though and I wonder how you manage the process when it's something this colossal and for such a long time has been so far in the future. You tackle these things one at a time you know we have we know what needs to be explored at Tokamak Energy we have a technology roadmap of of things that we still need to investigate and I'm sure well, Cullen will have the same thing. Eater will have the same thing. You know, we know that there are things like tritium breeding, for example, which is breeding the fuel that needs to be worked on. Um, we know that there are auxiliary systems, there are heating, there is fueling. Um, there are things like in magnetic confinement fusion, magnetic fields and how much you can increase those whilst keeping the forces manageable. There's things like shielding of the magnets, because if you have superconducting magnets that need to be really cold, and you're making neutrons that are really energetic, you need to stop those neutrons getting into the magnets and heating them up. You know, there are lots of things that need to be looked at because making a fusion power station is going to be really complicated. So it's not just as simple as achieving break-even in the plasma physics and then you're done. There's a lot more to do once we get past break-even even. Um, But I think that the fusion community is aware of what needs to be done and they're working on those things. And the more funding is involved, the more parallel work we can do, the more we can investigate in the meantime, and the faster we will eventually have Fusion Online. You talk about the Fusion community. Is that how it feels to you? Like a worldwide community of people talking to each other? Yes, I think it does. We've got the public, um, the publicly funded uh, labs, and there's a lot of collaboration there between those labs. For example, ITER is an international project. And so people from all over the world have been working uh, on finding out things that are going to go into ITER. Um, Then you've got the the startups as well. And a lot of them are working on different concepts, uh, but there's still a lot of exchange of information. And especially on things that are, yeah, the auxiliary systems and how you get that energy out of the fusion reaction, those kind of things would probably be quite similar across the different approaches. So the different approaches are going to be, how do you make the fusion reactions happen? How do you generate that heat? But then the later systems are probably going to be quite similar. So there can be collaboration, there can be exchange of information. And between things, people, institutions like universities and companies such as Tokamak Energy, uh, there's research that can be done that's not proprietary, that just raises the knowledge level for everybody. And so there, there is a lot of collaboration that goes on. Okay, so you've got a roadmap and there's this moment of ignition in the future, that moment where there's more energy being produced than you're putting in, and that is potentially really exciting, and I can feel that, but what if it doesn't happen? I don't, I don't think about it not happening. I, I'm just r- pretty confident that it will happen. I just think it's a matter of dealing with each of the challenges as they come along, You know, each hurdle, if you like, jumping over each hurdle, and eventually we'll get there. I, I don't necessarily think that it's going to be easy, uh, but I'm, I, I just don't even entertain the thought of it not being possible. I, just, I think that humans have done so much in the past. You know, flight, space flight, um, all these things, smartphones that we walk around with in our pocket. You know, there's so much that humans have done. And I think that, yes, it's very, very hard, but we just look at the problems we solve the problems one by one and we'll get there. I'm, I'm quite optimistic and I think that we, we will achieve it. I'm quite impatient as well. 
<laughs> I just want to get it done. But I say that about lots of things, but um, I really do. I, I really think that it's the solution that we need, that it can give the world an abundant source of clean energy with no greenhouse gas emissions. It can be a, a, a long-term solution for climate change and it can complement what we already have, like solar and wind. And I just think we need it. And I'm prepared to put in all the effort that we need to get there. You've just climbed Mount Everest. Oh yeah, I just did that. That's why I said I say that about. I said I find myself saying exactly the same thing. It's like Everest was exactly the same. It's like, yeah, it's not going to be easy, but step by step, I'm just going to go to Camp One and see how it goes. <laughs> go to Camp Two, see how it goes. Eventually, you get there. I know. I know from experience that if you hang on in there long enough, you can get there. <laughs> Inspired by Melanie, I wanted to see a tokamak for myself and get a sense of what nuclear fusion looks like. On a frosty January morning with the sun low in the sky, I set off from Bristol to Oxfordshire to meet with David Kingham, a former theoretical physicist and now executive vice chairman of Tokamak Energy. So Tokamak Energy is a business that aims to accelerate the development of fusion energy. Uh, We're up to 50 full-time staff here plus about another 30 contractors at the moment. We're working pretty close to the conventional scientific mainstream of tokamak fusion. The world spends probably £2 billion a year on tokamak fusion and has made some wonderful devices, including the jet tokamak at Cullum Laboratory. It's now proceeding with an even bigger device, the ITER tokamak in southern France. And we're looking at the physics basis of these devices and thinking this is pretty well understood. And the challenge to us is to create stronger magnetic fields and enable development to be done on devices which are smaller than um, JET and ITER. Mm -hmm. So try to get high plasma performance in relatively compact devices. We are confident that will lead to more rapid development of fusion energy and to more economically viable deployment of final devices. They probably have to be the size of JET, the the JET tokamak. They don't necessarily have to be as large as the ITER project. The JET tokamak at Cullum stands about 12 metres tall. It has a plasma major major radius of around 3 metres multi-billion investment uh, project that's been working now for pretty well 40 years and has set fantastic records for fusion power, 16 megawatts back in the late 1990s, has demonstrated the use of the full fuel, tritium, deuterium fuel, Mm -hmm. um, and has made huge scientific advances, which which continue to be made. The, The plasma physics continues to be better and better understood. So the problem is, as I understand it, is that at the moment you have to put more energy in than yes. you get out. Yep. And is that why you're working on these magnets? Is that basically the core of your work, is trying to turn that round? Yes, yeah. so the jet tokamak at Cullum did, did get to the point of producing 16 megawatts of fusion power in the late 1990s, but they had to put 24 megawatts of heating power in to achieve that. Now, if we go to higher magnetic fields, we can hold the plasma more tightly, uh, we can increase the plasma density, operate at about the same temperature, 
but the energy confinement time will increase and so it'll stay hot for longer. We won't have to put so much energy input into the plasma. Mm. And that changes the energy balance and suddenly you get a lot more out than mm. you put in. Uh, our devices should be capable of getting to so-called burning plasma conditions where actually you, you really don't need to put very much external energy in at all. Um, the plasma is kept hot. Of course, in, in the fusion reaction, 80% uh, of the energy comes off with a, a neutron and that flies out of the plasma unaffected by magnetic fields. It's caught in a blanket and heats the blanket. You can use that heat. But the other 20% is a charged particle, an alpha particle. And the idea is um, the magnetic fields in the plasma are strong enough, the alpha particle stays in the plasma, loses its energy to keep the rest of the plasma hot. Mm. And so you, you really can then minimize uh, external heating. Uh, and the other important effect in a spherical tokamak is a so-called bootstrap current. To stabilize the plasma in a tokamak, you need a plasma current typically a few million amps. It's a very substantial plasma current. Uh, in the spherical tokamak, there's a self-sustaining mechanism of bootstrap current that enables that to happen. Just a quick aside from me here. The bootstrap current is potentially really key to everything, as David will explain. But what happens is that in one of these donut-shaped cylinders, the tokamaks, if the gas pressure of the plasma varies across the radius of it, then there's a self-generated current that spontaneously happens within the plasma uh, due to the collisions between the different particles. And that is the bootstrap current as David explains, by harnessing that, they can really minimise the amount of energy that they need to put in externally. Actually, bootstrap current is, is one of the few examples of where theoretical understanding of plasma physics preceded experimental ver verification. Okay. So there was a prediction made, um, uh, well, yeah, probably 40 years ago, by Jack Connor, who, who's an eminent plasma physicist, saying, you know, this bootstrap current should work in tokamaks. And later on it was found that it did. Yeah. And it's a very important effect because it means not only do you not have to put so much energy in to keep the plasma hot, you, don't, you also don't have to put the energy in to keep the plasma current going. Mm. So that's what we're ultimately aiming for in these devices that they will be self-sustaining without external heating and with a minimal amount of external current drive. Mm. And then you start to get a device that's going to produce a large energy output with very little energy input. You're a business. Yeah. How does a business do that? Money? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the ultimate goal is very, very bold. It, it is clean energy uh, that could be deployed relatively rapidly uh, you know, into the 2030s and 2040s that could be deployed in many units of 100 megawatt scale. Um, so you might get to deployed capacity of hundreds of gigawatts by the end of the 2040s. Mm. 
And this is the sort of technology we're going to need to tackle climate change um, and to really reduce carbon emissions. What, what's happened really over the last few years is the desirability, the need for fusion has increased rapidly at the same time as a lot of progress has been made in de-risking the technology. So you're getting a changeover, gets less risky, engineering expertise is built up, more physics understanding has been established. When you couple that with the increased desirability, it starts to be the time to invest not just public money, but now private investment in fusion. Mm. And that's um, a significant trend that we've seen globally over the last three or four years. As you'd expect, a lot of that invest private investment has, has come in the States. As a business, we've now raised £50 million of private investment. Uh, a lot of that's come from private individuals, some well-known individuals like David Harding of Winton, you know, a scientific philanthropist, an enthusiast for high-temperature superconductors, but someone who also makes wise investments. Mm-hmm. And he has backed us you know, for several years now, and he's seen the progress in the superconducting magnets, which are particularly exciting for us. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, we also have investment from legal and general, and... Um, their investment is because they see this vital need for transition to a clean, carbon-free economy. A lot of their investment goes into this this area of clean new technologies. Uh, and we're a bit of an outlier at the very R&D end of, of that process. Mm-hmm. But Nigel Wilson, Chief Executive of Legal & General, has visited here himself to see uh, what, what we're up to and... It's been very, very supportive. Mm. How much of a hard sell is it, though? I mean, like, I, you're talking about individuals and businesses, because there's the there's the whole it's thirty years away, yeah, argument. Yeah. There's it's nuclear, and yeah, that causes a kind of blockage in people's heads to begin yes. with. Our investors have to be quite tolerant of technological risk. No, we are pushing the performance of our high-temperature superconducting magnets well beyond anything that could be achieved with conventional low-temperature superconductors. Um, and we're pushing into areas where the stresses on the materials are extremely high, the stored energy in the magnet um, gets very substantial. The engineering challenges of, of making these magnets work you know, just just that part of it is is very challenging, but we worked out a way of de-risking that technology quite rapidly with small-scale, high-performance prototypes, and actually that's thrown off a lot of intellectual property, some of which may be valuable for other applications of these very high-field compact magnets. Mm-hmm. Investors in the business can see we've we sort of grappled with a new technology. We've started to understand how it can work for us. We've built prototypes, demonstrated they work. We filed patent applications, mainly for fusion energy, but also for some other applications. We can show them magnets that work mm-hmm. at, at small scale at the moment. And a lot of our investors are scientifically well aware, scientists by background or original training, and they do look in some detail at the underpinning science of what we're 
what we're doing. That's not really in doubt. You know, the jet tokamak has worked at least as well as expected and, and has worked for longer than expected. And other tokamaks at Cullum Laboratory and at Princeton have worked extremely well. So the, the idea of the tokamak as a way of holding this hot plasma in place you know, for, a, for a long time at high temperature, high density, with this high energy confinement time that we need, that's, that's all pretty well established. The performance of the spherical tokamak, the variant that we're using, is also pretty well established, although we are pushing now to higher magnetic fields in these spherical tokamaks than has ever been done before. Hmm. We think that will result in improved energy confinement time. Uh, we can calculate what we expect, but we also need to get some experimental data points mm -hmm. to, to verify mm -hmm. that that's really going to happen. So th this, there's a lot of confidence that physics-wise this is a good way forward, and we have a lot of confidence in the high-temperature superconducting magnet development. We can see the pathway and the route to success there. And then we have to also grapple with the complexity of these whole tokamak systems. And they are very complicated and we need the right engineering partners yeah. to tackle all of the materials challenges. Yeah. High heat load components, materials that survive neutron bombardment, other materials that protect high temperature superconductors from neutrons. <laughs> That's all doable to do it relatively quickly at relatively, you know, only 100 millions of pounds of cost, yeah. then you need small high-performance devices. Yeah. The question that it's, it's in your pamphlet is the question that everybody has, is why is it always 30 years away? <laughs> um, there is an answer to that, really, in a report produced by the US um, Department of Energy, Fusion Energy Sciences Advisory Committee, uh, early in 2018. They produced a report which said there are some breakthrough technologies now emerging that do mean fusion energy doesn't need to be 30 years away anymore, that it can be of order 10, 10 to 15 years away. And those technologies are, first of all, the high temperature superconducting magnets, which mean the device can be smaller overall, uh, and that just helps to speed up development cycles. Then they picked out artificial intelligence and machine learning as an important technology and we agree that will become important for optimising experiments and control of future systems. Ultimately we expect them to be very valuable for optimising plasma performance of an operating device. Quickly find the optimum way of operating these devices. Yeah. And that's a job that machine learning and artificial intelligence is yeah. well suited for. But it's always been 30 years away. You're now saying 10, 15 possibly. But is it yep. always going to be 10, 15 years away? <laughs> <laughs> there's technological differences coming through. Um, there's also private investment coming in. This And the need for fusion is increasing. So there's several... There's technological advance. There's investor willingness. There's the need for solutions, all combining together. Mm -hmm. 
And that really wasn't the case 20 years ago. Um, the engineering can now enable it to be deployed rel relatively quickly. Mm. So, so I, 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 last year you um, got to temperatures of, what was it? F 15 million degrees. 15 million the target degrees. was hotter than the centre of the sun. But why do you need to be hotter than the centre of the sun? Because at the centre of the sun, it's, it's doing what you want to do, right? Yeah, the reaction in the centre of the sun is more complex than deuterium-tritium fusion that we will be doing in, in here in future. Um, the sun has to combine protons to form uh, an alpha particle, helium nucleus. Um, so some of these protons have to turn into neutrons, and that's a very slow process. Mm. But fortunately, you know, we the sun's very, very large, and we don't want it to burn up instantly. <laughs> so the fact that it, its fusion process is quite slow mm. is kind of advantageous. Okay. We'd like it to take billions of years <laughs> yeah, to yeah. burn all the fuel. Yeah. Um, but you know, on Earth, you don't have something the size of the sun, and you don't have billions of years. Yeah, yeah. You've got to have a reaction that works more quickly, and the deuterium-tritium mm. fusion reaction happens to have a high cross-section so long as you get up to 100 million degree plasma temperature. So 15 million degrees is a step towards that 100 million okay. goal that uh, we want to get to in the next year or so. Oh really, you're hoping the yep. next year or so to get to 100 million? Yeah, in the existing device. So what we're doing is developing the ST40 spherical tokamak pushing it to higher magnetic field to get higher plasma temperature. And separately, we're developing our high-temperature superconducting magnets. Mm. So the existing device is copper magnets, pushing as far as we can with old technology and developing the new superconducting magnet technology in parallel. And then the next device will have to combine the two. So in 30 years' time, do you expect to be saying, well, we did it 15 years ago? Is yes. First device deployed early 2030s, or you know, 2030, and then rolled out rapidly thereafter. Right. So that's... And where do you expect that device to be? Where, where's the world most uh, willing to do this? Well, Callum Laboratory in the UK is, is a, you know, has a track record of operating a place where you can operate these very high-performance tokamaks. Mm. That would be the first place we'd look to, certainly for prototype phase devices. Mm -hmm. And then it's really a matter of where, where is the optimum initial place of deployment. Is it you know, an old coal-fired power station site, for example, that has the grid infrastructure and we could... Um, put it on that sort of site. Do you just literally replace the heat source? Uh, what, what we're focusing on as business is, is essentially that heat source, mm -hmm. the, the, the tokamak and the blanket surrounding it, which collects the neutron energy and, and produces heat. Now, around that, you have to have a lot of other technology to convert the heat mm -hmm. to electricity or to use the heat for some other industrial process. You're talking about a cleaner energy. Is it a clean energy? Is there any nuclear waste out of this? Uh, so it would be very difficult to eliminate all nuclear waste from uh, fusion. What we can do is eliminate uh, all the long-lived radioactive waste, all the, all the actinides. Um, so there's no fissile material involved. 
uh, tritium is part of the fuel, um, and, and that is radioactive, it decays with a half-life of 12 years or so. Um, it's pretty safe, um, you know, you can, you can have a watch, with an luminous watch, with tritium, um, and, and the glass is sufficient to stop the uh, uh, decayed radiation being harmful. Um, but you do have to make sure the tritium doesn't get into water, and you, know, you have to take proper, proper precautions. But essentially, you can restrict radioactive waste to materials that will decay uh, within a hundred years. Okay. Um, not not the tens of thousands of, or hundreds of thousands of years typical of fission reactors. So there's no risk of meltdown um, and proliferation risks. Sort of security risks are very much reduced compared to fission. The challenge is to make it work. David took me out the back of the offices to where the science is happening. 45,000 square feet of space with some offices off to the side, huge amounts of equipment and terminals and a new control room being kitted out overlooking the place where Tokamak Energy plans to create temperatures of 100 million degrees in the coming months. Their ST40 Tokamak. A metallic orb, four metres high and two and a half in diameter. At first glance, it looks like something you might find on a science fiction film set, a Martian lander, or perhaps a habitat. There's something quite reminiscent of the Apollo era about it, particularly at the moment as they're working on it, getting it ready for the next run of experiments. There are duvets spread over the top and an aluminium foil covering the pipes on one side. Cables run along what look like horizontal and vertical ladders, all leading to and from the various terminals, control room, and the ST40 Tokamak. David and I stand on a raised walkway above the Tokamak, and I can't help but be awed by it. The the duvets on top of it are because we have been baking it out, i.e. getting the, the whole system up to about 150 degrees to improve the vacuum conditions. So metal walls of the inner vacuum vessel uh, you need to get them hot so you desorb gases from the walls and when you cool them back down you get much better vacuum conditions. Late March we'll be operating, uh, well pretty well continuously, so every 15 to 20 minutes there'll be a plasma pulse. We'll operate like that for a few days and then have a few days break for an engineering upgrade of some sort. Under the blankets there, there are a set of uh, 24 toroidal field coils, each of which is capable of taking 250,000 amps. So eventually we can put uh, 6 million amps in the centre column of the device to create the magnetic field that, uh, that we're aiming for. can't see from here the inner vacuum vessel. What, what you can see is part of our outer structural uh, vessel and you can see one of the poloidal field coils um, sort of lower down on that sort of centre section. We have the second of those to put on shortly in the next few days. I think that will, that will go on. And then there's a top ring, you can see on the floor there, 
that that will fit over the top of the device that restrains the toroidal field magnets when we put current in there's a twisting toppling force which does get very substantial so we need good mechanical engineering to restrain all the forces make sure the tokamak stays stable as we suddenly put 100 megawatts of power into it for one second to drive the magnetic fields so we've got out here we've got a vacuum pump and that's a turbo molecular vacuum pump the vacuum in there at the moment will be about 10 to the minus 8 millibar so that's um, 10 to the minus 8 that's a hundred billionths of an atmosphere. <laughs> we need to get pretty good vacuum conditions yeah. before we introduce the gas to ionise it. Over there we've got the supercapacitor power supplies. Uh, more supercapacitor power supplies are coming back from the manufacturer um, in the next month or so. They need to be installed and they'll actually be installed in the rooms we're creating over there. The stored energy in there of order 100 to 150 megajoules. It's controlled so it can be deployed in one second and charge up from a diesel generator in the grid in 20 minutes and discharge in one second to get the magnetic fields we need. Over there we've got a power supply and a neutral beam injector to help us in the early stage or the next stages of our experiments we're going to use a neutral beam to inject energy and heat to the to the plasma that's our first the first of three neutral beams we'll be using uh, we're getting another one to help us measure plasma um, parameters and then a third beam that will be capable of putting a megawatt of heating power into the plasma so um, because we've got strong magnetic fields, you couldn't fire an iron beam into the plasma. It would get deflected away by the strong magnetic field. So you have to create an iron beam, accelerate it, for example, to around 40 uh, kilo electron volts, and then neutralize it, um, put it through a thin film so that uh, it ends up neutral deflect away any remaining charged particles and the neutral beam carries on into the plasma and that provides energy, it helps to increase the plasma current and, and it also causes a rotation of the plasma which is, is favourable. But when it's turned yep. on, would we yep. be able to stand here? You'd be, you'd be okay in the control room just, just up there. I mean we have radiation monitors all, all around on this platform right. wouldn't recommend people standing close not really for radiation reasons but high energy is being put into the device there is an outside chance of something flying off okay yeah. so you wouldn't want anybody really in line of sight yeah. but um, you know you don't need a very substantial barrier to protect people and if, it, if there's De uh, heat of a hundred million degrees inside yeah. that thing. Right? Yeah. So, the, so you, would you be able to touch the outside of it? Uh, well, yes. I mean, I know yeah, you wouldn't. Uh, we wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've just it's it. How yeah, for electrical how? safety as much yeah. as anything. It's the magnetic fields that just make sure the plasma doesn't touch the edge of the vacuum vessel. 
the total stored energy in the plasma is not not absurdly huge. It's um, of order 10 megajoules, perhaps 15 megajoules of energy. Very hot. No, it's not very dense. Yeah. Um, it is very hot. Um, so, strangely enough, the plasma, by being not very dense but very hot, is at about atmospheric pressure. Yeah. That, so it's not extreme in that sense. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, what, what kind of but, but of course, once we put deuterium into the device, then operating with hydrogen plasmas is pretty safe. If we put deuterium in, then we have to have a metre-thick concrete shield around it to stop the neutrons getting out of the experimental region. So oh, you got aluminium foil there. That's to keep the vacuum pump at about the right temperature so I, I said earlier we were baking out the device to try to improve the vacuum conditions so you know you don't want heat losses from the wrong places so aluminium foil turns out to be quite <laughs> quite effective it's in amazing. combination with other insulators I think that's the thing that makes it you know yeah. the Apollo era sort of yeah thing, you know. yeah uh, aluminium foil pretty yeah. good for uh, recreating yeah. the conditions yeah. at the heart of the sun and also landing on the moon yes <laughs> yeah but you know you're seeing the device as it is today yeah um, it uh, you know, we could smarten it up and oh. uh, when it's fully operating it'll look different again yeah. we won't be able to see much more detail but we put we put a lot of material online so people can see the the structure, the internal structure of the device, how it was designed, what what all the bits do. So, uh, so in ten to fifteen years, when, uh, when yep. this is working, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Does if I went to the heart of a power plant, then would I see something very much like this? Uh, yeah, it'd be bigger. It'd be of order ten to twelve meters tall, ten to twelve meters across. That would be the heart of the the device, the yeah. heat producing part of the device. Um, and do you have a figure kind of in your head of how many homes that... We are aiming for this um, 150 to 200 megawatts of electricity. Um, the UK uses about 30 gigawatts of electricity, so is that um, yeah, you'd need 150 modules to power the whole of the UK. Okay. This, in the next 12 to 18 months, you expect to be creating temperatures of 100 million mm, degrees? Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's the objective. We'll go in stages. Now, if, if we get to 40, 50 million degrees this year, we'll be pretty happy. Um, and then we, we have to deploy more of the neutral beams and extra heating mechanisms okay. to get up to the, the top performance. <laughs> Both Melanie and David mentioned those potential spin-offs and patents that could come out of and are coming out of fusion research. While I understand the need for those arguments, I feel it's a bit like arguing that Beethoven's violin sonata is worth it because it's good exercise for the violinists. The goal of a cleaner, almost inexhaustible energy to power our needs on this planet is surely a worthy enough goal in its own right. Combined with renewable energy sources, it points to a future where we could move away from fossil fuels 
and dramatically reduce our impact in the climate of our planet. There will doubtless be some difficult times ahead for fusion researchers on their way to that goal. And I asked Melanie Windridge what she did when things got difficult on the way to the top of Mount Everest. I usually sing, actually. It depends what you're doing, of course. Like, if you're doing something easy, then you can chat to people or you can think, I think about stuff and plan things. As soon as it gets hard, I settle into some kind of song, like a mantra. I'll sing the same song for eight hours, you know, just like boom, boom, boom. Nuclear fusion energy may still be 15 years away, but that's 15 years closer than it was 30 years ago. If there are any fusion researchers listening, just keep singing. Physics World